0: Hello and welcome to the MIT Press Podcast. Today's episode features a discussion between Mackenzie Walk and Lauren Fournier on the topic of auto-theory as feminist practice. Auto-theory refers to a wide range of literature, philosophy, and art-making practices that dispose with the separation of the theoretical and the autobiographical. Today's speakers will be exploring exactly what this means in regards to their own work and interests. Mackenzie Walker is a public intellectual, writer, and philosopher. She's the author of many books, including A Hacker Manifesto, Gamer Theory, and Capital is Dead, amongst others. Her most recent book, Reverse Cowgirl, was published in February of this year by Semiatext, and is perhaps her most overtly autotheoretical work, in which the author moves between different modes and genres to create a writing practice that expresses life outside existing accounts of trans experience. Mackenzie will be in discussion with Lauren Fournier. Lauren is a writer, curator, video artist, and filmmaker based in Toronto. She teaches at the University of Toronto, York University's Department of English, and Ryerson University's School of Image Arts. Her forthcoming book, Auto Theory is Feminist Practice in Art, Writing, and Criticism, publishes in February with the MIT Press. What you're about to hear is the full, extended version of this discussion, And if you'd like to hear a shorter edited version, you can find it on our podcast homepage. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast if you want to stay up to date with all of our content and feel free to get in touch if you have any questions about anything discussed by emailing info at mitpress.org.uk. Finally, if you'd like to support the podcast, please consider heading over to Apple Podcasts and giving us a five-star review. It helps us reach a larger audience and in turn, allows us to produce more of these discussions. So, without further ado, I'll pass over to Mackenzie and Lauren.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think auto theory, when people ask me what it is, one of the answers I give is, like, I don't know that's why I wrote this book. I feel like it was a term that was trending a lot around certain texts that were coming out around the 2010s, 2015, like, really started to take off. Um, And it was being used, but people weren't necessarily sure what exactly it meant. Auto theory, most simply the bridging of autobiography, embodied subjective modes with theory as a discourse, as a framework, um, as, as a mode of practice of, of theorizing and philosophizing. So one way of thinking about it is ways of working that are explicitly directly bridging these the auto and the theory that are shuttling between one's life, one's self, as it is You know, as one's life as they're living it in a certain body, in a in a given time and place on a certain land, in relationship to others in their lives, other texts that they're reading, other ideas, research. So I think the most obvious example that is cited is Maggie Nelson's The Argonauts, because that's quite literally this queer feminist memoiristic text. One thing I'll note is that a lot of Auto theoretical writers are actually rejecting the term memoir. And I'd actually be curious to talk with hear Mackenzie's thoughts on that too. But it seems like there's a distancing from traditional conceptions of memoir in favor for this term auto theory. And so that was something I was really curious about. You know, what is it about this term theory that perhaps makes the turn to one's own self in life seem maybe intellectually valid or more critically relevant and resonant than traditional memoiristic modes? So yeah, with Maggie Nelson's. You have the memoir, and then quite literally in the margins, the citing of names of theorists and philosophers. And so I think when readers were able to see that really direct shuttling between auto and theory in a text, that around 2015, that's when this this term really started to take off and and, um, seemed like a a whole subset of readers and writers were really excited about by that mode.
2: Yeah, I I really like that about the book actually, because it's this genealogy I didn't really expect from coming from what you would think more of as art practices, some of which had text in them and and some didn't, but all of which engaged with that auto as as kind of uh, the thing that turns back on itself maybe. I think a bit of automatic writing in a way as well, the thing that particularizes to a particular kind of body and its situation, and then theory, you know, which to me is the production of concepts. So, you know, in the era of the kind of collapse of the, the grand narratives, maybe that kind of return being marked subjects and not sort of, uh, I mean, I loved all those post-structuralist theory books back in the day, you know, they're all about like, you know, difference in repetition and repetition uh, and so forth, but they're all like written from on high by these like white guys who all went to the same, <laughs> you know, elite <early laughs> French <laughs> university. And I'm <laughs> like, what is this going here? And, and then sort of you find these other lineages, some of which interact with that. Um, but to sort of use sort of feminist art practice stuff, I thought was was really interesting. And obviously, there can be multiple genealogies. It just wasn't one I, I thought of. I thought of more through sort of like queer stuff. Mm-hmm. And, and sort of versions of African American literature, wanting to be conceptual, you know, you could find these other versions of it. And I think it's great to have this one as as one of the ways to think it.
1: Thank you. Yeah, no, I I was interesting because this work actually emerged first from my doctoral work and I am indebted to my supervisor, Marcus Boone, who was thinking a lot about practice and and him and Gabe Levine put together the practice reader through Whitechapel and MIT actually, but thinking less about auto theory as a genre and more as a practice felt like a good way for me to start thinking in a way because this, this mode of practice is so emergent and kind of nascent in the culture. It felt like instead of I was less interested in defining it specifically as like a rigid genre and more as like a thing that artists and writers and critics and, and activists and others seem to be gravitating towards. And Mackenzie, I think you're certainly right around, you know, some critics were calling out folks who were saying that the Argonauts was a new genre, for example, saying, like, you know, actually Gloria Ian Saldua with Borderlands, La Frontera was was doing something like that back in 1984. And that there is this whole lineage of of writings by by feminists and mm-hmm. primarily by women of color who were who were working in this mode that was shuttling between the personal, the political, but also the the personal as philosophical. So that was I took that as one kind of provocation in a way and mm-hmm. and and thinking about performance art practices like Adrian Piper's Food for the spirit. It was funny, I was actually in London on a research trip, and I was mainly reading Freud in the British Library and actually trying to think through, as you do, do, and trying to think through the gendered politics of narcissism, because that was actually one, kind of one of the first questions I felt like I had to address with auto theory was, you know, how do we unpack in a critical way, the politics of of that turn to the self and of of the the self-reflection. And I felt like when I was reading when I was reading Freud, something that really struck me was the way that narcissism is very much feminized and seen as inherently uncritical, inherently petty. And and so yeah, and, and but it was funny because then I took a break and went to the Tate Modern and was walking through a group exhibition called Performing, something along the lines of performing for the camera, performing the self. And Adrian Piper's Food for the Spirit was on view. And this is the, the first chapter that I opened with in the book. But, but essentially, it's a, it's a work where she committed to reading Kant's Critique of Pure Reason over the course of a summer in her studio while fasting. But then found that, in order to, as she put it, prove to herself that she still exists after this disembodying experience of, of being so immersed in Kant's philosophy, she found herself turning toward the mirror with her camera and taking these. Yeah. Essentially proto-selfies. So I was kind of like, you know, that turn already, that actually feels auto-theoretical. And like, where else can we see that impulse in, in art practices? So that was really the work that that prompted that line of thinking.
2: I mean, there's something heroic about the memoir and, and or, or kind of adorable also in that it, it thinks the self is knowable. <laughs> uh, whereas I think after Freud, that's sort of what we learned is, is like we actually don't have a direct knowledge of the self at all. Like we have, you know, sort of misrecognitions and fictions. And I I think of auto theory as, among other things, post-Freudian in that sense. And in that, you know, like the self is really not available to certain kinds of writing that you would then make true claims about. So, yeah, like the the reasons auto auto theory kind of happened and and in parallel with auto fiction, which is probably worth mentioning as well. So you can take this in a more, a direction that's more about kind of sensation and affect. And then if you add a conceptual layer to it, I think you've got more of auto-theory sort of trajectory. But it's interesting that those developments have happened in parallel in a kind of literary intellectual world to deal with. All right, so we don't have the, the grand narratives anymore, the the self's, you know, opaque to itself and we're drowning in information. And a good concept makes a lot of information go away and reduces it to something manageable. So there's, there's a way in which it's kind of a genre that had to happen. But I think you're right. It's better to say it's a practice, yeah, because the results can be very different in different media. And even to think practices rather than genres is probably helpful.
1: Yeah, and, I, and Mackenzie, I'd be curious as you're describing that, you know, after the memoir, after Freud, how do we think about writing the self? Your your book, Reverse Cowgirl, comes to mind, and I'm curious. It Certainly, seems like that's the approach you took to writing through your own life.
2: Yeah, and it and it and it owes a lot to maybe slightly different auto theory precedents. And the, the other thing is you you sort of name the precedents as you call these things into being, mm-hmm. and and also to auto-fiction to, uh, you know, Colette and Jurass and uh, Genet and like those to me were. And and there's, there's all like little snippets of all of those. New Narrative, I think, was trying to figure this out as well. You know, how do you talk about, you know, like daily pleasures and uh, struggles, but then also get your reading of George Bataille connected to that. You know, mm. so yeah. In, in Reverse Calgary, I was sort of working, sort of working that vein a little bit, and I, and of course, i I straight up stole technical ideas from Maggie Nelson. <laughs> but I got to say that that book's controversial with trans readers because it's sort of it's the cis woman kind of is is she trading on the trans partner's pain. And you know, like, leaves a bad taste in the mouth of a lot of trans readers. Uh, even even admire it's at the level of the sentence and and other sort of forms of formal construction in it. So there's there's ways in which the autotheoretical theoretical doesn't solve certain problems at all. It just sort of displaces them into a different practice.
1: It's true, and I, I'm glad you raised that because I think I do take up briefly in in my book, but. The relationship between the auto-theorists writing their own self in relation to others, you know, I think some critics have been a little bit more utopic and saying, like, oh, you know, they're they're forming these citational communities. And and Maggie Nelson's recognizing Harry Dodge as legitimate source in the margins next to Preciado and, and and Freud and whoever. But there's that moment when Maggie Nelson actually like addresses Harry's discomfort at her writing about him, and, and it's kind of like, well. But and yet she still persists and is sort of like, well, this is my story and, and I have the right to tell my story and that tension we see in Alison Bechdel's Fun Home or no, uh, sorry Alison Bechdel's Are You My Mother when she's talking about her mother's discomfort with her writing about their relationship and I feel like the the politics of you know whose story is mine to tell and and how and can you you tell someone else's story from your lived perspective in relation with them is, is a thorny question. A lot of these texts. And I think with, with the Argonauts that yes, it's rightly come under, under fire from, from trans communities.
2: And it's, it's sort of not resolvable in a, a literary culture. That's essentially part of like capitalism where you're, you're basically making claims to ownership in a story is the whole basis of writing as a commercial enterprise. So it's, it's kind of like whatever you do within the text is, is sort of up against the larger formal structure of, you know, the literary marketplace. Mm-hmm. Uh, interestingly, Harry Dodge has his own book and it reproduces a bit of Argonauts in it as well. So there's, there's like a weird little ripple in that. And, it, totally, and it's yeah. a really interesting, trippy book with, with like way too much name dropping for my time. <laughs> I, but uh, apart from that, it's a like super interesting counterpoint uh, to tell a different story. And, and and doesn't really deal with trans stuff at all. It's about being an artist.
1: Yeah, and that's my meteorite, I, I believe. Yeah. It's the, um, yeah, well, it's funny the mention of... Mackenzie, your mention of the the name dropping and the kind of the insular nature of some of these communities, that it, it's interesting to look at who who is being cited in these texts. And oftentimes there is that element of self-reflexivity within a given community. And I've come to under, like I've come to terms with the feeling like, okay, maybe this is just the nature of any art movement, any creative movement, that that there's like that level of recognition of others who've been innovating in those forms. And yet I am aware of the ways that that then can become its own sort of. Insular autonomous literary things. So yeah, I think that, that was another reason why I was a like, I was interested in looking at other other media and, and points of reference. Cause I think, you know, video artists who are working auto-theoretically tend to have a different range of of reference points than than the writers.
2: Yeah, and, and to me that was that was really important in thinking about Janae's books are about. People who don't even get to live, let alone write books. Mm-hmm. And there's an element of that even in um, your narrative. You know, there are people who didn't didn't live long enough to write their own books or who really deserve to be characters, but would never get to be in, you know, like cishet bourgeois novels at all because they weren't people who are recognizable. So I think that would be the counterpoint to the whole thing about ownership of story and so forth. Is, you know, like uh, there are versions of this literature made certain things, at least circulatable.
1: Definitely. I know that you, you reference Serge Dubrovsky too, in in your work. And I I think of, of his, I think he's actually credited as coining autofiction as like a formalized term in that French autofictional tradition, but, but his work with writing around his relationship with Foucault. And I feel like I'm really interested in Dubrovsky's work as this kind of intersection point between auto theory and autofiction.
2: Yeah, he really deserves to be better known in the uh, Anglophone world. I don't think there's any books in English, are there? I, I don't even know. Uh, that's so a good to... question. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and he is, he is credited with this, this sort of paradoxical formulation of, you know, it's like, it's like fiction but where the author is really present in the text. And I think that's kind of an interesting sort of position to take in the sense that, and, and, and it kind of works for me too, It's like I'm here in my text. So these stories are on me. You know, I'm accountable for them, but I'm making no claims to their truth value. I could have made some of this shit up, and kind of had to because Australia's somewhat vicious libel laws. You know, yeah. <laughs> you <just can't. laughs> uh, besides other reasons that like some people are really entitled to have their stories not told. Mm-hmm. So, so to have the the option to do that, and there's interesting precedents for that. Like Charles Mingus's "Beneath the Underdog" is I think really underappreciated as, as auto fiction, maybe even auto theory or Diane De Prima's memoirs of a beatnik. Like, you know, it's it's kind of like tongue in cheek. She did not have sex with all these people in exactly this manner, you know? But it's like, it's her in the text kind of thing, constructing this this fictional view of, you know, beatnik life.
1: Yeah, well, and I think that idea of like these bourgeois lines dividing, you know, what is, what is appropriate, what is proper, like whose stories can be told and, and how, like, there's certain other figures that crop up earlier on, like in this history of auto theory, like even the Baroness Elsa on Freitag Loringhoven, like data artists. And I was really interested in, in Amelia Jones's take up of her as like this lost data artist because she was actually literally embodying the data philosophy in practice and, and was seen as this kind of horrific abject figure by the male by the male data artists who were canonized and whom Amelia Jones describes as like living their otherwise bourgeois lives, like when they weren't making their art. And I feel like that's something else that I really find interesting with these theoretical ways of working is, is really blurring the lines between art and life, critical, creative, public, private, obviously, but also the self in relationship to one's, one's work, which I think also gets really complicated when it comes to the politics of cancel culture today. And I feel like when I was First in school, back in undergrad, the idea of even talking about a philosopher or a, a writer's life in a class on their work wasn't part of the conversation at all. And and now it feels like the pendulum swung. And And if someone has, you know, a politically fraught life, our willingness to take up their work, I think especially by younger generations, is is more charged.
2: Yeah, you know, because I was, I was part of that like 80s generation where it's just the text, you know, it's like it's not, it's not readable back to the intention of the author and I still abide by that. But I think it is readable back into the situation in which the author was enmeshed. And we're a little bit captive to that thing that I think you can now read a little differently that Foucault was doing in the archaeology, which is, you know, I write in order to have no face, you know, to push into the dark passages and into into the unknown, leave it to the police to see that our papers are in order. And, you know, part of me is like, oh, yeah, I get that, you know, like this de-subjectivization. But also, honey, you're talking about cruising. Like it's the most personal thing you ever <laughs> write. It's about <laughs> writing unpersonally. <laughs> it's like mm-hmm. literature Story holes. It's like, I'm, I mean, I, <laughs> I love that. <laughs> <in
0: there. laughs> yeah. So
2: there's, I think there's ways you can sort of rethink what was going on with that. Of course, he has several of his boyfriends wrote what got treated as Romana Clef about him, but they're maybe better thought of as auto fiction, auto theory. Mm-hmm. Uh Baer wrote a, a nice book about him. Yeah. We're, we're finally going to get, like, you know, thank you, MIT Press, uh, Guillaume Dostoy is going to come out oh, yeah. the first three books in English. Fantastic. And to me, that's, that's like the root of autofiction is, and, it, and you know, I'm, it's not my life, you know, but how do you narrate the life of a, a gay man who cruises? Like it just doesn't fit in the bourgeois novel. You know, like you make gay men characters in bourgeois novels by giving them property and long-term partners and, you know, like white-collar jobs and all that. Bullshit that bourgeois literature is about. but these lives fall out of that. Yeah, like they don't really have a place. And but it seems to me that like a lot more people, even like straight and cis people, kind of live like that now. Yeah, like who has like the house in the country and yeah, who even gets to own their own fucking apartment if you're under thirty? Yeah, and and like everybody cruises. That's what like dating apps gave to the straight world. So there's kind of a way in which some of these forms, I think, speak to readers for whom the the bourgeois novel sort of maybe on its last legs a little bit as a form because the life it corresponds to becomes like utopian, like a fantasy, you know?
1: Definitely. And it seems like, yeah, the politics, just the relationship between housing and, and sex right now is really
2: complicated in light of, of COVID.
1: And, and yeah, like I feel like I'm I'm so interested right now too in in working class. You know mm-hmm. politics, and and I, I think of some of the radical, some of the life stories of of the really abjected radical feminists like Andrea Dworkin, and people who I I don't necessarily agree with, but who died in 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 really like dismal. Impoverished conditions, and I think of stories of of yeah, some of these kind of like outlier feminist figures too, and queer figures who whose lives weren't necessarily told because of class or because of poverty and because of you know structural racism, like all these different things that get in the way of of as you say, the bourgeois novel.
2: Yeah, or, or you know, Saint-Simoneve's book on uh, being on the on the on the assembly line. You know, she wrote a book about factory work that no one knows how to classify. Uh, oh, it's it's yeah, it's auto theory, yeah, because it's it's sort of not like it's not you know from the point of view of the worker because she's not. It's not theory, you know, from on above because she's like present in it all the time. Yeah, I think there's books we can kind of like reconnect to. Yeah, including and you gotta admit, Andrew Drocken kind of could really turn a sentence, you know, like she kind of wrote well. And there's experiences in those books, uh, even if yeah, the anti-sex work thing is a bit of a deal breaker. Mm. Yeah, but are there ways you could get other things out of it? Or, That's um, true. It's like it seems like... of spaces, you know, like the occasional pieces she wrote. Uh, yeah, there'd be another example. Sorry, I was cutting you off there.
1: No, I was... It seems like it ties into your point earlier about, you know, maybe we can take certain formal devices or, you know, experimental innovations from folks without rejecting their work outright, which I do think has happened with figures like Dworkin. But it's interesting to your point about Foucault and and earlier your point about philosophy being written by these white men who've at least pretended to be doing something from on high and not from an embodied place and I feel like something I do address in the book is the ways that actually this auto-theoretical impulse while really rooted in in feminist traditions and, and queer traditions bubbles up all through the history of philosophy and and certainly essayistic writing traditions. I mean, going back to Montaigne and earliest roots of the essay, I think from its start has always been a, a form rooted in the eye and looking to using One's embodied perspective as a way into to theorizing all kinds of of aesthetic, political, social issues. And I, I think in the book, I'm trying to look at even the auto-theoretical tendencies within Freud, within Nietzsche, within Derrida, like these are kind of cropping up. And something I really love about Chris Krause's I Love Dick actually is the way that she, in a very deliciously cheeky way, is takes that disingenuous fictionalization and like it's like okay there's a character Chris Krause, you know and the character Silver Latranger and but then it's like well no this is very much well I, I guess I can't be speaking for her but my understanding as a reader is that this is grounded in you know the life as lived that it's not really being fictionalized but you know maybe yeah. because of libel maybe because of these other reasons but then her point about you know so much of literature by white European men is this, as she puts it thinly veiled story of me in all caps, and I really love that because I think it shows the ways that auto theory as a term that's kind of trending right now, is in a lot of ways really just crystallizing and and embracing this tendency that arguably runs through the work of maybe all writers, I don't know to some extent.
2: <laughs> yeah yeah, and it's and it sort of I want to embrace this and and also be a little take some distance from its uh commercialization as well. Like this there's, there's a way in which everything that's, you know, sort of like anything vaguely memoiry by millennial white girls is now called auto fiction or auto theory or something. And it's and the books don't often really live up to that. Of course, people should still get to write them and whatever, but the you know the books that actually sustain you know larger claims about them are a little bit rarer than that. Mm-hmm. And we all know it was Dick Happy, just the Dick, and I love Dick, right? And and reportedly was very unhappy about it. And I kind of see why. Nobody likes to be subject to that level of scrutiny. But that that sort of turning the turning the gaze back was a thing that that book really enabled, uh, mostly for good. Although maybe there's some versions of that we could have could have done without, but mm-hmm. yeah, I'm still a, a Chris Krause fan. She's fallen out of favour a little bit, I find, but mm. yeah, that book really enabling. Actually, the thing about about Chris's writing is, yeah, there's like, you know, there's like sex in the books, the things that's really upfront about money yeah like the like she talks about money and that's that's mm-hmm. the real taboo you know like nobody does i didn't do that either in in uh, reverse cowgirl i'm trying in the next one they it's like oh yeah how do you write about the that money mm-hmm. <laughs> that's a lot yeah. harder you know
1: <laughs> that's such a good point yeah it's interesting and that that's more vulnerable you know than the most like explicit sex acts that <laughs> to, <laughs> to disclose the truth yeah, about money
2: pages and pages about us <laughs> <talking> about <children. laughs> <laughs> no, it really wasn't hard. But money, like that's actually really <laughs> hard to kind of uh, to put on the page in any way that's not, you know, just embarrassingly disingenuous or moralizing or – because the, the truth of, of literature is it's mostly a middle-class pursuit, yeah? And to be middle-class is boring <laughs> kind of by definition.
1: Well, one thing I love about I Love Dick is the way that I think – something that really strikes me about it is how – Chris Krause takes up the politics of who gets to be considered an intellectual and also the power of that and and I think really allegorizes that in a hyperbolic comedic way through these this gender binary of like the female reduced to the body the man elevated to the mind and and think about the heterosexual politics actually in a kind of queer way Um, and so your point that there's all these books coming out that is is every selfie is every memoir can can you tag on this term auto theory i think it's a, a really valid and important point i'm currently working on editing a, a special issue of this of this ASAP Journal Association for the Study of the Arts of the Present with my colleague Alex Rostoff. And one thing we've been thinking about is as we're editing other folks' work on auto theory, it's like, like how, how do we establish a working parameter and framework that's flexible enough to be inclusive and to be open to the directions that this practice is mm-hmm. going to take, while also making some limits, you know, because I, I don't think that every memoir can maybe properly call itself auto theory but but it, it is a slippery question and I feel like in the book I've tried to lay out some some parameters for you know what constitutes auto theory but I do think in a more generative sense that what some of these texts are doing is raising the question of what constitutes philosophy what constitutes theory you know who gets to occupy these roles and who gets to say what they're doing is a practice of of philosophizing.
2: Yeah and I'm, I'm glad you sort of raised it as practice rather than genre, because I hadn't actually even, I hadn't really thought that through, but it just so, it makes so much sense to me. But then, like, you do want to ask, like, what's interesting about the practice of the writer before you even get to other sentences or paragraphs interesting or whatever, you know? So it's like, yeah, what what is the daily life you're engaged in, which need not be sort of spectacular and romantic or anything like that, you know? Like like um, Pessoa's... Um, uh, texts like that's that's already you know auto fiction but all Pessoa ever did was go to work uh, sit in cafes and write like that's the entire life you can see maps of uh you know Book of Disquiet of where it was written and it's like you know about 10 blocks in Lisbon that's his entire freaking life it's a one live incredibly boring but every little bit of it he's able to observe and and flip around into a concept yeah mm-hmm. and it's like oh that's it's it's not that you're you know, you're an explorer or, or, or anything like that. It's just the way you're able to connect writing to a practice of the everyday. Uh, mm-hmm. So yeah, I think that's that's maybe for me would be the, the criteria that I'm looking for. It's like, do you have a way of, of sort of perceiving, but then also sort of gathering that and, and turning that into a concept that's maybe a little unexpected, you know, like a, a good concept, I always say this like a, a good fact is mostly true, but about something in particular. A good concept is slightly true, but about a lot of things. So, mm-hmm. so I think it's a practice that sort of is oscillating between those things in a way that can be a little self correcting, where like a concept of concepts are emerging, which for me, and for me, they do that in, in I Love Dick. Yeah, you, you get some concepts about what, uh, what desire is. Uh, what would it mean for a straight woman to practice her sexuality with the same pride that gay men do? Like that's one of the things that asks. Uh, it's like, oh wow, yeah, this gives you a whole other perspective on these actually fairly banal, you know kind of uh, ordinary uh, everyday kinds of sexuality going going on in it. And this gets us away also from things like queer theories validating of of only the sort of extreme and fantastic experience matters. It's like uh, how do we how do we be conceptual about the mundane?
1: Absolutely. And I think, yeah, auto theory is so indebted to queer affect theory, queer feminist affect theory. I know you mentioned affect early on in this conversation, like taking a queer phenomenology, Sarah Ahmed, like I think, yeah, taking seriously that every day as, as a site for the generating of concepts. Yeah. No, I love that, that working definition for sure. I feel like also another way I've been thinking about it is you've mentioned a few times the importance of the text. And I think that with auto theory it's almost like what writers need to remember is once I think Alison Bechtel actually says this too, like once you're putting your work out in the world and maybe framing it as auto theory, well, okay, your life in a sense is becoming a text and it's open to critique. And I think that that actually can make some people really uncomfortable. It's sort of similar to, I teach art students and it's like an art school, like in the critique, you know, like if you're working with personal material, well then that's being embroiled in like what's up for critique. And then that mm. starts to you know make some folks really uncomfortable because the treatment of their life is becoming a text and but i think the the importance of reflection and critical reflection can't go understated right now i feel like we're in such a culture of reaction that having some some more you know reflection on the self and one's life and the ethics and the politics of one's life maybe i'm a little bit optimistic but i feel like auto theory has potential for writers to take that seriously as a philosophical practice and, a, and an ethical practice
2: yeah, I, I want to make that a little, like, even dialectical in a sense. Like, uh, where is the space for young people to make relatively non-consequential mistakes through thoughtlessness? Like, where do you even get to do that? Now, obviously, there are things that you would not want to to go wrong. Yeah, like, where where is the environment where you could, you know, like like, lose yourself a little bit? without having to sort of like second guess whether you've like, you know, followed all of the rules and so on. And maybe there's a kind of obsessive inward turning policing of rules. It's not really self-reflection. It's more whether you sort of like ticked off certain uh, habits rather than whether you thought about them at all. So, yeah, it's like separating a few things like like that out, Yeah because it's kind of like, I don't know, like I only, you know, <laughs> I'm nearly 60. I kind of just see it through my students. It just, it really sucks to be young at the moment, uh, you know, like the, the media landscape, the sort of like devastation of any possibility of middle-class urban life and the fact that the planet's dying, like all conspires to make that deeply unpleasant. So, you know, that yeah. there's a picture that sort of Exists in that you know impossibility of of the old forms, you know, really not an accident at all. Mm-hmm.
1: No, you're right. It, it seems like there's certainly no no public place to to be making mistakes right now. <laughs> and I I credit Anne Boyer for this 100. percent. I, I mentioned this in the book too. But she she's been thinking about. We're at the auto conference at the Royal College of Art last spring, and just over lunch, she was talking um, with Joanna Walsh actually, who wrote a similarly auto theoretical book through semi text, but and Boyer was talking about essentially this this tension between Gen X, which she identified with, as being almost amoral and anti-moral, and then the millennials as being just so hyper-moral. And it's it's absolutely true. I feel like I'm like in the middle space where we're we definitely had the room to like fuck up, but and it wasn't exactly in public. It was like the tech, the social media tech was like, um, you know, still in development, and yet yeah, kind of caught in that liminal space between. So I think you're absolutely right. There is this kind of hyper morality that that's also, um, you know, I think it, it, it's all part of this, this hyper polarized discursive
2: world that we're living in right now. Yeah. And, but maybe with at least some sense of accountability, which maybe did not exist in eras that I would also have passed through. So I, yeah, I, I don't want to sort of talk about it. Like it's, it was the good old days or anything, but it, is there a way to sort of make a synthesis of some of those different values? and then in a sense maybe that's one of the little tasks this kind of writing is, is you are sort of tooling around with yeah and it's like ah uh, you know like yeah we sort of get the political objectives here but some of these means to achieve them just don't work you know like the cop in your head you know sort of going off about everybody's or behaviour is, is part of carceral logic you know like that's not a solution so yeah how do how do we sort of get out of that without giving up on the fact that yeah like you know, sexism is real. Like we live in a class society, which is fundamentally racist. You know, how do we hold onto the truth of that, but find better tools and, and literature is a thing for doing that. Yeah. For opening up experimental spaces for playing around with these things.
1: Yeah. I would echo that. Absolutely. (laughs)
2: Like I you, like, I think uh, I'm, I'm getting this from a different context from somebody called Eric Michaels. Like we really have to have a working definition of what bad auto theory is. Like, I, I think the, the success of it, of a genre, uh, and without being, without lapsing into parody and, and being patronising in all those ways it's usually dealt with, I think we need our own independent sense of, yeah, okay, I, I'm, I'm with you. Sometimes this stuff's bad, but here are reasons why I think we could say this isn't good work. Uh, and I think as a set of practices, that would be really enabled to be able to do that. Yeah,
1: I mean, one idea that comes to mind—I feel like could be contentious, but I guess maybe like a lazy approach to like a kind of superficial placing of of the self next to theory without really engaging with both as as substantive. Materials. I mean, I think at its worst, there's this one sort of auto theoretical trend that we're seeing is is like selfies with theory books. I, I take this up in the book as well and, and thinking about like the ways that forms communities. So I actually love like topless theory reading, for example, which is um, Sonia Fernandez Pan out um, of, she's based in Spain and Berlin. But it started quite organically between her and an artist that she was curating, and then it's like, let's take topless theory reading. But then it, it organizes as a hashtag. It's a way for people to share, you know, the books that they're reading. Not always theory books, but they tend to be part of a certain kind of scenes. Maybe some like speculative fiction in there, and and um, and queer theory and feminist theory. But I I think that the bad form of auto theory would be like not reading the book or like it it just becomes this fetishized object and i think that that's something that i've seen a little bit of not in that project but elsewhere and, and that that makes me worry that that theory can just become a fetish object uh, you know that we forget the importance of reading as a practice the importance of of you know actually being immersed in a text and and thinking through it one of the reasons that prompted me to choose the uh, cover image for the book it's by the Iranian Canadian artist Sona Safai. and it's um, this fantastic I think it's fantastic it's this pattern that she's been playing with for a while but it's in the form of the Louis Vuitton bag but it's you know the theorist names as logos in this brandscape and so you have like the Deleuze and Guattari and and even also different artists that she, she essentially took the um, theorists and the artists that she was primarily told to read when she was in art school and so you have like Andrea Fraser in there and um, Nicholas Burio and I liked that tension around the neoliberal politics of auto theory because I do think that there's certain risks that we run in, as you've noted, you know, the commodification of the memoir, but also the commodification of intellectual references as a form of cultural capital. And so I feel like that would be another kind of bad version of auto theory.
2: Yeah. And, you know, personally, I always like to to think of a distinction between low theory and high theory as having like a class dimension to it. You know, like there, there is a kind of high theory world that you kind of need, you know, $100,000 worth of American graduate school education to kind of understand what the conversation even is, you know, which kind of becomes a prestige object in itself and a sort of art object, like its uselessness is its value. Whereas I think low theory is just much more about how do you survive your life. Uh, and it's a tradition I've always been much, much more interested in. Uh, which would include things like uh, Angela Davis's sort of biography of her time in prison, yeah uh, mm-hmm. is auto theory because it's sort of about how to survive that. but it's it's where she has the least to say about German critical theory, yeah because <laughs> it just mm-hmm. you know, oh, to the conceptual challenge of, of what was happening to her. yeah. Yeah, so that there, there is a kind of um, there is like there's a gentrification of auto theory going on as well, yeah. I'm uh, not super. Keen on, and it then tends to land on certain fixed points of reference. I mean, it seemed really exciting in the eighties to talk about Foucault and Deleuze and whatever. People are still talking about the same theorists, right? And it's like, well, yeah, maybe those some of those things endure and become classics. But really, you know, like like what happened since uh, they, they sort of accumulate prestige as names to cite. Yeah, so it's, I think maybe that's another thing. to start thinking about is reflecting a little bit more critically on the like class dimension in that sense of cultural capital as well. Yeah. That's kind of going on in a literature that maybe is sometimes becoming a way of signifying uh, a certain kind of class belonging. Now, I, I, was, I was handed Foucault by self-described nasty street queens in like handmade Xerox copies of, you know, pirate translations, you know, like it meant something completely different. It wasn't a thing you studied in grad school at all. Uh, and it's different bits of foucault. it's the bits that would help you navigate uh what it meant to be policed and policed by the you know psychiatric institutions as well and so forth so yeah, to me it's for for uh auto theory to be low auto theory kind of matters as well. I think that's where it's more interesting
1: yeah, well it seems like one of the the distinctions there too is between you know referencing something for the sake that. Like I I know what Deleuze and Guattari's rhizomes means versus referencing something of like I've absorbed, as you've said, like Foucault's critique of of um psychiatric institutionalization. And I'm able to enact that in my understanding of the world and how I share this knowledge with others. And I think your example of Angela Davis's autobiography as well, like it's it's like the distinction there is the absorption and and kind of transmuting, metabolizing of, of these ideas and concepts through through your your lived experience and through your body instead of just, you know, referencing for the sake of of showing off some some kind of intellectual credibility.
2: Yeah, there's some not great examples that I won't mention that some of which have the same references as Maggie Nelson's book. You know, it's like, okay, <laughs> we, could, <sighs> we could move along here. And it's, and it's mm-hmm. like, I find that with teaching too. So it's, it's hard to get people to take the risk of sort of discovering other literatures and that don't have value associated with them already, yeah.
1: Yeah, well, I, I think um, Shannon Bell's a performance artist I've worked with and, and, sh- and political thinker, and she talks about this, like, the importance of oblique, like, unexpected connections. So when when she's thinking about her kind of, radical feminist female ejaculation practice through Paul Virilio. And, and like, she's just like, I want to, like, she's like, I want to make, I mean, maybe that's not super oblique of a connection, but it's almost like it is more interesting to me to have unexpected citations too. Like, I, th- I think you're right that we've, we've, you know, established a certain working form of like present-day auto theory, but now I think it's time to like expand beyond that and and look to more unexpected sites of, of reference and knowledge as well. And I do feel like there's some really interesting work happening with a lot of indigenous contemporary writing too. I know Lindsay Nixon from well indigenous from the colonized lands of so-called canada but their book thinking about their like Cree identity being raised in treaty four lands here where i'm actually speaking to you today and just yeah there's a lot of interesting texts that have a whole different set of reference points that aren't that french post-structuralist tradition
2: yeah yeah it's and it's like looking for you know yeah what would be a sort of And and it seems wrong to have, like, a lineage or anything like that, yeah? There's there's a way in which the the high theory world is all about a sort of apostolic succession of this person was trained by that person who was trained by that person. And, And there's sort of like the passing of a personal, you know, sort of investiture, you know, from one person to another through, you know, great institutions. But, yeah, I'm more interested in where does theories spontaneously occur outside of institutional frameworks, and it's so striking how much of the stuff you're supposed to read within an institutional framework actually happened that way, yeah? Like, Marx was not a philosopher. Spinoza was not a philosopher, yeah? Like, Marx was a journalist. Spinoza was a lens grinder. Like, they were trying to produce concepts for a struggle in life uh, that was all around them at that particular time. And I kind of think, you know, like quite frankly, the universities are like crumbling around us at the moment. So you can't sort of rely on it as the space where conceptual work gets to happen. So how can you seed ways it's learnable and teachable through everyday life without becoming totally kind of like crazy and ungoverned, you know, like it has some sense of error correction. That to me is like a real, you know, like struggle. Like there's just a struggle to be able to produce knowledge enables people to navigate their lives uh, without falling into crazy conspiracy theories or depression or you know any of the sort of like many things that lie in wait that you frankly get very little training in how to deal with other than people trying to sell your products for it. Yeah. So yeah, to me it's these these books have a real purpose in the world.
1: Well, I do take up the politics of the, the shift from the art school, like art college model to the the neoliberal university and the ways that that seems to introduce certain tensions for artists around, it's almost like the paradox of if if you're being forced to read theory, you don't want to read, you don't have time to be in the studio making your work and exploring and you know making the mistakes and figuring out what your views are and, and the concepts you're interested in and then creates that. That state of affairs that you've described, where I, I I do think it's like you know artists feel stifled, the concepts aren't really coming, and the the institutions are crumbling, and folks are just being moved through it swiftly as a kind of business model.
2: Yeah, I think that that was the fate of of theory. Yeah, that like people didn't see how it related to everyday life anymore. So it's it's just not a thing people really wanted to do in quite the same way. And you know, like uh, I read Deleuze and particularly those in Guattari, kind of obsessively, you know, and when you get to like becoming woman, like they didn't fucking do it. <laughs> Neither of them did it. <laughs> There's like the series of becomings that that's one, and then becoming animal, becoming infinitesimal. It's like, fellas, fellas, you didn't even make the first step, you know? Well, I mean, you did. <laughs> but also they managed to mention, but never really deal with the person who tried, which was Judge Daniel Paul Schreiber, like I think one of the great uh, auto-theory writers of all time from this very privileged life. really basically discovers that he's a woman, completely loses his shit or her shit, I think more appropriately, massively institutionalized, quite possibly abusively, and thinks her way out of it to the point of being able to claim to be you know, cognizant enough to get their legal rights back. The, the book actually worked. It <laughs> enabled her to get out and live the rest of her life. So, like, to me, that's the kind of writing practice that, like, don't a lot of people need that now, like, just to survive whatever this nightmare is.
1: Have you read Carmen Maria Machado's In the Dreamhouse? Because that's a more recent. So that's a fantastic book. And I, I don't talk about it in my book because I, I'd read it after my book was already in production, but I, I believe it came out in 2019. But it's not auto theory in the sense of, of explicitly referencing a bunch of other theorists, but it's the writers writing through her experience of queer domestic abuse in a lesbian relationship. But then I I find the form stunning because it's actually really constituted through repetition. So it's like each page is like, you know, the same story essentially, but in one form. And so it's like the the dream house as stoner comedy. That was the page I opened up to and I'm like, okay, I'm going to love this. Like what (laughs) what the, I'm like, my attention is, you know, peaked, but yeah. So it'll be like, the dream house as and then there'll be some working verb or noun and and I find it it's a really interesting way of telling the story of one's life and trying to seek understanding of a situation and insight from a complicated situation and engender some some insights and and critical reflections from the
2: other yeah, thank you. i am doing so many good recommendations here. I that one I've right been
1: shotting down all of yours as well. So <laughs> <There's> <laughs> both have lots of us reading to do.
2: <laughs> I guess different reasons to put the proper names of theorists in books. Yeah. And and there is the relation to authority and precedent. I kind of play guilty a bit to that in um, Reverse caliber. Like I wanted a, a, like a field that it could be in. And I was also thinking of reading in the age of Instagram and Twitter where it's like the book would be like a feed where it'd have these different authors, you know, kind of like just, like, yeah, I'm sick of reading, walk, you know, oh, here here's this paragraph of Genet that's actually just better. <laughs> and then I'm oh, back to walk, you know. So, so it's a little bit of that. But to me, it's also that thing of how do you signal that there's other places the reader could go? Like one of the things I love about Paul Preciado's Testo Junkie is it's just got lists, uh, it's just a whole list. Like, I looked some of that shit up. I hadn't heard of half of it. I'm like, who are these people? And I'm like, I don't necessarily love all of them, but it's like, wow, it's a whole field of references of people whose practices super interesting and, and trans in, in Paul's sense, maybe not mine. You um, And that was kind of great. And, you know, I got names out uh, of Kathy Acker books. I could use people's real names and be like, oh, all right, you know, I'm going to go do that. Yeah. Yeah I, yeah. I think she's a precedent too. Yeah. It's, it's one way of my reading. I have a book coming out on Kathy, and that that was basically what I argue. It's like, oh, they're actually for theory books, you know? Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I would I would definitely agree. I I got to visit Kathy Acker's exhibition at the ICA in London during the Auto Conference, and that felt like a, a lovely, yeah, kind of pairing of the two to to think about her 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 books and her writing alongside the work she was doing in video and sound. And mm-hmm. yeah, well, and I think your your point about citations like forming reading lists I I do think that I guess I shouldn't understate the potential power and and politics of the ways that citations are mobilized in some auto theory books I even think of like Colleen Smith her human 3.0 reading list that I referenced where you know she's actually writing and hand drawing out reading lists saying like for black artists in America this is actually an alternative to paying you know six figures for an art school education and here are the books to read without paying tuition or and just giving giving folks bibliographies and and reading lists as as a form of activism and advocacy too i love that you've called the references at, at the end of your book the chorus i think that's quite lovely
2: <laughs> yeah yeah i i, I called the the people cited in the books of chorus, because just to give you that sense, and like the old-fashioned Greek chorus too. And it's like because I am really like any auto theory writer, you would imagine I am actually quite vain. So I saw myself stepping out from that chorus, you know, in the book. But it's like well, at least I should acknowledge it's not a solo show. <laughs> and like all books are détournement, yeah, they're all repurposed from other people. So I should put the people I repurposed it from in the book and give people their paragraph. And there are also a lot of things you could do that were interesting. Like sometimes I'm just having people, a quote from someone in the text that seems like a commentary on it. Sometimes it's a contrast. Sometimes it's an experience I don't have that somebody else has. And it was a way to play with gender too. It's like, ah, well, you know, how is this experience of being fucked in a cis woman's different same, you know, let's just put them next to each other and, and you know, you can read one after the other.
1: Well, and I do think a lot of the power of the form of auto theory is that moving, that almost like shuttling between the different registers. Early on when I was thinking about it, I was like, it's, it's almost like in some of these, maybe it's a little bit too simplified of a way of thinking about it. But it's like if, if an auto-theoretical text is putting forward a kind of thesis about one's life or about the world, then it's like looking to both one's life and the theory, you know, the, the text outside of them, both as forms of a kind of evidencing. And I think that there's this, the, yeah, the movement between different registers is a way of, of backing up a point or providing a kind of counterpoint in, again, that, that essayistic tradition of writing. I think a lot of auto-theoretical texts are effective in, in using that mode and, and and looking to, you know, okay, I can, I can be experiencing this in my own life. I'm also seeing this outside of myself. You know, maybe there's, there's something going on here that's more valid than if it were just yeah. something I'm experiencing.
2: Evidence is a really interesting word. And that, that seems like a, a, a bit of a common thing with a lot of the feminist practices that you were interested in as well. Yeah. And and thinking it through the time a lot of it was done when when women had just disbelieved that any of this was life. So you had to actually offer evidence, even to other women, that like, yep, yeah, this is life, this is the shit. Literally in the case of Mary Kelly, yeah, <laughs> you know, like to just sort of evidence it there. Yeah, that's pretty interesting. And, and to me, I'm thinking that, the thing I was saying about the fact being mostly true and then the concepts. So uh, how do you then stop that getting pushed back into the private realm? There's, there's a way in which struggles around um, privateness and publicness are central to this as well, yeah. I mean, novels are mostly exclusively about private life, yeah, except for things like a historical novel. And then fiction is a great get-out clause where you just pretend it's all made up when it sort of never is, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, to be making claims that something... And I think the claim in auto-theory is that things might be true, that things are possibly true, and then evidence for their possibility... Yeah, there's there's ways it sort of shifts boundaries around publicness and privateness. And you know, the the personal is political was one of the great second wave feminist claims, yeah. Uh, but the political is also very personal, turned out to be the obverse side of that that really needed addressing as well. And there's very different things at stake in publicness and privateness for, for queer people, people of color, or for indigenous people. For indigenous people, the categories don't even work at all. Yeah, so I, I think there's just so much that these practices of writing can work on that, yeah, that word using of evidence is really helpful there.
1: I mean, one thing I'd, I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on, and we don't need to go down this road if not, but I know th- this idea of the grand narrative has come up throughout the conversation. And, and one question I've had about auto theory that I'm actually fundamentally unresolved on still is, is we are in this age of following that postmodernist logic care of Frederick Jameson and Leotard to its end point and that we're the end of of meta-narratives, the end of any kind of shared reality. And I feel like that is really marked by this post-truth post-fact, fake news, kind of media discursive landscape. But the place of auto-theory feels a bit complicated insofar as if someone... I mean, this ties into that, that question of evidencing. So it's like, you know, my truth is my truth. I think at its worst, some people might see it as like, my truth is my truth your truth is your truth. And then we're, we're not able to speak the same language because this is my experience and that's your experience and they're fundamentally unable to be reconciled or or both be able to be true. And so that was something that was in the in the back of my mind. I I take it up to some extent in the book, but I don't go too deep into it. And I think maybe that that place of evidencing and and writing about the self in relationship to others and and also kind of hearing and listening to others plays a role in that.
2: Yeah. And there's there's a few ways you could have at that. I actually think in in some ways, what to me is the best answer to Jamison Leotard on the postmoderns, his book on uh, otaku culture by Hiroki Azuma. And he sort of reads it as a transition from narrative to database. So in sort of good old-fashioned structuralist terms, it's like shifting from the diachronic to the synchronic axis. And for him, you know, otaku is his figure. Uh, But really, you know, contemporary culture consumers are kind of selecting elements from databases and assembling them how they want which is sort of how anime characters get assembled out of like moe points, you know, like like little points of attraction that you assemble together into the character. And, you know, when there's enough stuff, like you shift onto that axis. And that makes total sense. And it's a way of getting out of the, oh, there's only the fragment. If we don't want to have the the narrative glue. The thing that's never said about that is the, the grand narratives always come with coercion to keep you connected to them. In both the East and the West, that was true. And so then, ah, what, what keeps us in you know in the space of the database? If you're choosing elements that aren't in it, then you can no longer connect and relate. You know, there are ways one could think that. Or you could think it through um, Sian Nye's book on our aesthetic Categories, yeah, which is the zany, the cute, and the interesting. And so in this case, it's about the interesting. And that's where that, that sense of like little bundles of evidence for, for something particular that um, possibly the case are sort of relatable to other bundles, like this way you can start to get a kind of topology of what our database simulation might be like through things like good auto theory that have like gathered that piece over there and next to this other text or practice over here, you can kind of see how you form a sort of network sense and you give up that sense that any individual writer or book gets to speak for the totality that's the thing I have. There. Like, you don't get to be Hegel anymore. Sorry, <laughs> me, but, <yeah. laughs> it's not going to happen. And it was really popular again? But but yeah, that's that's not there. Like, if there's if there's a something like a grand narrative, it's geological. It's not historical time anymore. Like, that's what the Anthropocene means to me. Yeah, it's that that geological time is now faster than historical time, and is probably going to overwhelm us if historical time doesn't doesn't suddenly. You know, divert course soon. So, yeah, there's there's a way in which I think these literatures you could see as like a, evading certain challenges, but I think they kind of approach it in a slightly different way. But that does involve starting to try to think auto fictional and auto theoretical practices as communal practices as well. We have tended to focus a little bit on letting certain authors get sucked into the uh, celebrity literary sphere. We're all supposed to read fucking six volumes of Nausgaard. You know, it's like, sorry, it's just not even, <laughs> it's not even interesting to me. So yeah, like what instead would be a kind of community of practices where our auto-theoretical habits are things that we can relate and connect and find solidarity, Yeah. You know? mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm. Well, I think on... A kind of fundamental level with a lot of these texts, in light of of this this shifting place of of meta narratives and truth value, that maybe one way of thinking about it is that there's just a there's a a different kind of stakes in that relationship between the life versus fiction versus theory that's always at play. And I think that it is something that a lot of writers mentioned Chris Krauss, but others have taken up like the politics of presenting something as fiction versus presenting something as fact, how it, how in present day feminist queer context, there's, there's certain charged politics around that. And so writers maybe don't have exactly the same freedom that maybe modernists did when thinking about like auto fiction. I, I think it's just starts to take on a different shape or charge. It's something I was thinking a lot about when I was thinking about the place of parafiction as well, like artists like Walid Rod, who just the idea of, you know, these practices that felt very different before like QAnon was mainstream, you know, like it's like the idea of presenting fact as fiction, sorry, presenting fiction as fact. And as as a conceptual mode of practice that these parafictional artists were playing with, and that certain like kind of auto fictional writers are playing with as well, the context has shifted.
2: Yeah, that's like all the ambitions of the avant garde always come true, just usually in the worst possible ways. Oh my <laughs> I think you know, all these work I really <laughs> love, but oh my God, mm-hmm. yeah, like mm-hmm. you were so onto something, and now we're living it in the worst possible way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, that's... yeah.
1: I mean, I was at his artist talk in Toronto, like, I mean, I think it was just like five years ago. And it, I mean, the context still felt completely different than it does right now. Like it was it was still able to, to see that work and, and feel a certain kind of energy and excitement in the work, which I, I think is still obviously in the work. But it's, um, it's harder to enter that world with, with that level of imagination and suspension yeah. of disbelief, I think.
2: Hey, I wanted to ask if you'd read uh, T. Flashman's book. I haven't. Time is a thing a body moves through. Okay. You know. Oh, yeah, I really recommend that. Okay. And, and they go by clutch as well as, well as T, but uh, clutch wouldn't call it auto theory or auto fiction. It's mm-hmm. legible in those terms without imposing on the writer too much. And a lot of it's thinking about um, Felix Gonzalez-Torres and everyday trans life, you know. Really gorgeous book and has a lot of smart... I kind of read it after I wrote Reverse Cowgirl and I'm like, oh, this took a much smarter move than mine did because it's very discreet. There's a lot of talking about cruising, but you do not even know what genitals anybody has. Some people are a real name, some people are not. and The central narrator is recognizably clutch. So it is, you know, like generically the practice is so close. Uh, yeah, I'd love to know what you make of that one. Wonderful. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, because I'm kind of interested in whether there's, is, is there a space for trans writing in, in this space? Like, I think there is. And to me, that's the kind of, and I can't claim my own book as evidence that it'll work, but that one is would be the other.
1: Yeah, no, I mean, I, I certainly think there's a place for trans writing in, in auto theory. I, I feel like in my in my book, trans artists are certainly a part of the conversation. And I'm just finding a lot of, yeah, a lot of energy in the work of transgender queer non-binary writers and artists who are thinking through, you know, how to tell, yeah, the stories of their lives and their own embodiment in as part of these these conversations and I'm always love learning like new books too. I feel like I mentioned in my book, I'm like, okay, you know, this is one archive, like working archive that I've had access to in my like constellating of of the world. But I'm sure there's so many other books that are, you know, being published right now too. So it's it's I yeah I I think there is a lot of exciting work still being done in this area. Oh yeah, I'm keen to see where it's going.
2: Like like it keeps getting declared as over, and it's like I don't think we've started yet. You know, we kind of like yeah, and and so the thing I would agree liked about your book is like, oh, I hadn't thought of that as a prehistory or a set of connections. I thought it was something else, and it's always kind of really good to go, oh, you could actually map this in this different way include this other field of practices that uh, are then much closer to art practices. And the way that the art world is sort of like the last public sphere in a way for certain things is kind of like sad but true, And, and this stuff is one of the markers of that, I guess, yeah, that certain other spaces got so... Sort of restrained, and and there's no money in them either. But you know, it's this weird thing where curators now curate concepts as much as they do artists or artworks, and they do it around things that are sort of more interesting. Watching from mm-hmm. the university,
1: yeah, I mean, I feel like a lot of that comes from that idea of working from outside of university structures. I I do some curatorial work. And I actually was just thinking about this yesterday where I, I didn't learn curating in school. And I actually love that. Like it was like, yeah, you learn self-taught, meaning actually not self-taught at all, but taught in a community by other practitioners and, you know, through the work of conversing with others. Also back to our previous conversation, I would be remiss if I didn't mention Marquis Space work. I feel like they're them Goon Rules, really fantastic work of auto theory and trans writing and and yeah, we've been we've been talking together recently about about ideas of auto theory too.
2: Yeah, and there's some beautiful prose in that book too. Yeah, mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. yeah, beautiful writing, just gorgeous lines. In fact, I was trying to like, I, I I thought my next book would do the same quote thing as the last one, and I was just. And I, I usually edit the quotes, and I'm just going kind of like, "Oh, I want the whole thing," you know. I want this whole paragraph. <laughs> Mark was in my next book. I'm not sure if I'm going to do the quote thing.
1: I feel like there's something to the paragraph interjection. To be honest, like it's yeah, you're spending time with a different voice for a bit. There's maybe that level of duration versus that quick snippet that I quite liked. Yeah, although you know, I think it was really effective.
2: Porn books sold nowhere near as well as my theory books. <laughs> yeah. <so. laughs>
1: Uh, gotta make smart sexy again right like
2: yeah Yeah, our
1: our own ambivalence around the commodification
2: Uh, um, and and i I only care to the the (laughs) extent that you know like I, i i need books to justify their existence to publishers who believed in them you know like i don't want to be a drain on on that and also you don't get contracts unless your previous contract earned out you know is that aspect of it as well.
1: <laughs> well I can give a shout out. Everyone should and, buy reverse. <laughs> give it a read.
2: <laughs> they pair well. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> oh, so I'm actually hoping to write my own auto-theoretical thing so (laughs) I'm the working title is working class kids so I'm still uh, writing that out and thinking about that but I want to yeah I'm I'm pretty excited I'm kind of diving into this realm of thing with the politics of class and language and and translation and land and yeah intergenerational trauma and but also comedy and and humor so lots of things I'm trying to In mesh into this, this text, but it's, but it's been interesting to have this conversation because I've been going to unexpected sites as I'm writing, including like my time working at a mental health drop-in and kind of being on both sides of, of like the mental health consumer side of things and, and stuff. So it's, it's a, it's a good reminder that in these unexpected non-academic sites, a lot of the insights of theorizing one's own life and one's living. That's that's where those insights are are gained. And I, I certainly feel like that's the case and in my life, even as I've gone through, you know, the PhD program and these different academic sites, so much of my own coming of age as a as a thinker and a, a human were outside of those spaces and I'm really grateful for that.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And, and I, I think that shows in the writing and, and it's a quality that I always kind of appreciate, you know, when I find that in, in a text. Yeah, I really look forward to that. It's like like, classes are like third rail topic that like no one can deal with. Literature is just so bourgeois and petite bourgeois. Like that's, that's sort of the parameter of it. And there are all of these other literatures that are exterior to that, including a lot of writing by women, right? Who even if by class origin or middle class did not get to live that life, they wanted to be a writer. Very little of, of trans lit until very recently had any contact with the university you know, just didn't get to go unless you're like me, a late transitioner. you know. So there's all this kind of like power literature right? where where the thinking has to happen. Like that's the other thing I think is that when is a concept not a luxury, when you desperately need it in order to endure, you know, to me that's a really vital kind of important literature uh, to, to kind of go looking for. And you find it in like the broadsheet of, of STAR, you know, the uh, organizations organization, Sylvia, Riviera and Mark B. Johnson started, you know, like it didn't last very long, you know, street people with an analysis, <laughs> you know, I every now and then you find that. And, and you know, one, one can look at a little bit too much pressure gets put on people whose lives were very singular and spectacular, but I think ordinary every day. Like uh, Landscape of the Good Woman, Do you know that Carolyn Steedman? Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. I really recommend that. And it's coming out of uh, early British cultural studies that she's thinking through her own, Childhood through class, living with her mother and her mother's upward aspirations that she never could quite fulfill. Yeah, no, I think, think maybe you'd find that one interesting. Thank you.
1: And Mackenzie, you mentioned your project on Kathy Acker. What else? Or, well, I'd love to hear more about that slash what comes next for you.
2: Yeah, that's called Philosophy for Spiders, out not with Semitext or MIT, but with Duke <laughs> next fall. And yeah, part of it's actually what I remember about Kathy. And then what I can fact check about that. And most of my memories are wildly inaccurate. So I sort of lay out what I remember and then finding actually that's not true because you can Google it. <laughs> so wow, I want to that's present, fascinating. But present and undermine my credential as someone writing who knew her. It's astonishing to me that nobody's written about having sex with Kathy Acker. Like, I asked her executor, is it okay to write about this? And, and Matthias's answer was, it's Kathy. You know, like, why did nobody do that? <laughs> there's evidence for a life. Like, I don't want to reduce the texts to that. But, oh, there's, there's evidence of a life and a practice, yeah? And then it's, it's trying to read her work as a theory, yeah? as, a, as a phenomenology that has practices. Masturbation is one of her key phenomenological practices of the body. Her philosophy of desire... And, and something like transness. There's a transness in Kathy that I really hesitate to label because she hated identities completely. But the way she thought about that desire in relation to gender. And the third section is the world. Like she's really not thought of as a philosopher of the city or of nature, but she is, you know, or a class or a post-capitalism. Like post-capitalism is all through her books and she has a theory of it. And she experienced it at the cities where it was really starting to pop which was London, New York, and the Bay Area. Like She saw this world coming. The other thing is, is I've tried to write a book under this title for 30 years. It's called Love and Money, Sex and Death. And as I, as I said, the money part's the hardest one to write. Like The other three are like actually easy compared to that. Uh, and it's all in the second person. I'm trying to – and actually, uh, are there precedents for that? You'd know, yeah? Like who, Who's done auto theory in the second person?
1: Well, Claudia Rankin's work, actually, when she writes Citizen, and I believe actually both of her books are are written second person, I could be wrong. I know Citizen for sure in American Mm -hmm. Lyric, but, and I I was thinking a bit about, yeah, the, the second person in that case as... My interpretation is commenting on, you know, the privileges of who has access to that eye, and and so when she's telling these vignettes of experiencing in her daily life structural systemic racism, that and um, anti blackness, that she's using the second person as a way of telling this autobiographical story, but with some remove, and but it also creates that effect for the reader of, you know, the you you you. There's a sense of responsibility, and
0: yeah. Mm-hmm.
2: yeah, there's a weird minor literature in the second person that I'm. Just trying to, and it's so strange that it's a minor literature. was like pop songs for years were like mostly in the second person, yeah, and blah, but it's and we take that for granted. Uh, for the address in, in a literary text to be you is kind of rare, I, yeah. I'm just trying to figure out what you can do with it, and, it, and it's also ways of avoiding saying certain things about who's addressed because of the neutrality of the, the shifter, yeah, it's just you. So you don't have to add, add too many qualities to that. And you're like weirdly putting the reader in the position of these people that they're not.
1: Yeah, it's fascinating because it's like the, using the third person to tell the autobiography, like it, it feels more at home in that autofictional mode. Because it's like, okay, treating yourself as a character. But the the second person is that interesting space in between that, or or the, the third space of... Um,
2: yeah, yeah, anyway, so I'm, I'm really struggling with love and money, sex and death, particularly with money.
1: <laughs> hey. Well, I would super encourage you to, you know, lean it, to go with, it. I feel like we need more writing on more honest, you know, theoretical writing on money. I think it's fascinating. I also, I made a pretty nerdy video art piece a couple of years ago called Sex and Death. So I can send that to you if you'd like. Oh.
2: <laughs> I mean, it's hilarious to me that like Chris Krause gets so much flack for being a landlord, but it's like you knew that because she wrote about it. Whereas like most authors don't. Like most authors just don't even cop to more often than not. There was an inheritance or something that makes writing possible. Yeah. Well,
1: and Kathy Acker is such an interesting figure in terms of class. Like I'm sure you thought about this too, but yeah, like the idea of her almost rejecting the fact that she was this rich kid and, and then living her life not, I guess, the opposite of. A well, different kind of class mobility,
2: <laughs> moving moving down. The thing I the thing I love about Kathy, and she did this to me in person, and it's in the books, is that she made out that she was richer than she actually was. And she was from a certain kind of German-Jewish money in the city, but as the poor relation, she sort of made out she was more high-born than she actually kind of was. Like I've seen where her apartment is. She would claim her family was from Sutton certain place. Not quite true. A few blocks away. And I've walked that whole part of the Upper East Side. It makes a difference, you know. So there was like a little strategy in that. But, yeah, she she and she spent very freely and was kind of perennially worried about, you know, making a living and stuff. But, yeah, like super interesting example of somebody with a slightly aberrant path around that. But, yeah, we're being born still into a certain kind of privilege, Enabled certain things, and so enable a confidence. Yeah, I, I think that's that. That's one thing class will give you is confidence that you're allowed to do it, and it's adjacent to the confidence you get as as white or male or whatever. But like maybe even more so in a way.
1: Mm-hmm. And part of that self mythologization as well. It seems like I feel like that's been one of the interesting things. I I'm, I'm I love your approach to Kathy Acker as like you know the life as you experienced with her from memory than fact-check. Like, I feel like a lot of the writing that's been done on Kathy Acker has been really mythologizing, but in a kind of uncritical way or, or feels like it's a, it appropriates her story, but in a way that maybe doesn't feel like it has the right amount of care or, 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 yeah, I guess thinking about the politics of that myth and of the kind of mythology of Kathy Acker.
2: Yeah, she was a, a you know, complete self-mythologizer. And like, I, I don't want to say it's lies because she lived inside the myth. We were staying together in in New York City and and walking Central Park. And she was like, oh, uh, when I got married, we had our husband at the plaza because Jews had their uh, honeymoons at the plaza and wasps at the Sherry Normandy. She didn't have a honeymoon at the plaza at all. She went straight out to San Diego. Like that's, I'll fact check that. But the thing is, the myth she's telling me contains a kernel of truth to do with the internal wasp Jewish division within the class from which she came. So it's a completely mythical story that actually told me something as a, a provincial petite bourgeois wasp from another country I kind of needed to know to sort of map the social world. So yeah, there's this sort of like super weird stuff and there's even disputes about what issue was born. I think we finally figured that out from the birth Yeah, so the self mythologizing got in the way a lot of and Christian notice did quite a bit of work to uh, track that down in her book. Just as Bride is another biography that's Further kind of verification and interviewed me about the you know a few weeks that that of which i'm a witness kind of thing yeah but it's sort of like oh, why do we expect the writer to be the truth of the book like i think auto fiction has an interesting relation to that as well yeah it's like oh wait you fictionalize the author as well well kathy already did that in in very deliberate and self-conscious way
1: no, I love that, the the truth in the mythology. I mean, I even think of like Audrey Lorde's Zami, a biomythography, and like that there are, you know, just as there's this tension between, or maybe not so much a tension as a kind of dynamic between the auto theory fiction, but then myth is like this fourth player in a way. And, you know, how does each writer treats themselves in a different way? Like maybe there's, there's those writers who are seeking, maybe assuming that, project of knowing oneself in an honest way is despite Freud, et cetera, still possible and takes that route. And others like Acker, like treating oneself allegorically, symbolically, as a kind of myth that that there is you know, these underlying truths. And I think Acker's work, it's been interesting. It's kind of, it's hard to categorize in relationship to auto theory and auto fiction, but even a text like Blood and Guts in high school, like when you're reading it, you're like, you feel like there's, this is coming from some kind of autobiographical place, you know, you don't necessarily know how and where to locate that. And, in the specifics, but
2: there's just that sense of, you know, this well, you, know you know, I, I list all the anthologies she's been in, you know, really since the seventies mm-hmm. in the back of the book or all the major ones, at least, and that she's been claimed by every literary movement for 30 years. <laughs> and by all means, I think she should be claimed for auto theory. I'm totally for it, mm-hmm. but it's sort of in the all sense right. of like, oh, wow, really, really <laughs> weaving together every single thing that was happening. You know, uh, she really had that ability. But I'm glad you mentioned Zami because, and what did, what did Lord call it? Mytho a a biomythography. Mythography is a super interesting term and you can see how that's adjacent, but not and a thing maybe to think twice about claiming given that blackness is kind of key to it, key to its separation. But the other thing that really fascinates me about that book is Lord was so, so close to the Communist Party and is still so, so discreet about it in the eighties. But you can sort of read it between the lines, you know. It's as if she just happened to be working on the Rosenbergs, sort of trying to stop the Rosenbergs from getting executed. And it's like, honey, you were a fellow traveller. Let's just have it out, you know. <laughs> Probably not a party member, but that's a slippery question anyway, you know, and, and there's no wonder you end up in Mexico with basically people who are blacklisted out of the United States. Yeah, so there's that side of, you know, the discreetness around being a black lesbian, but also discreteness about being from body culture is like such a part of that book, and it never gets discussed.
1: Yeah, well, the question of what a writer or an artist chooses to disclose in their work, even when they're working autobiographically, is really interesting. It's, and we've talked about that a bit with the tension between sex and money, maybe. But this question of what is capable of being disclosed in a a given text by a given writer. I I actually think of like Jennifer Doyle's book, Hold It Against Me, Difficulty and Emotion in Contemporary Art, where she's talking about what's difficult for one person as a, as a viewer or spectator of contemporary art, it can be so different to another person. And she opens with the actually writing auto theoretically as an art critic, thinking about the, she says, all critics have limits and this idea that for her, you know she can handle the transgressive, self-violent, fluid-filled performance art, but she can't handle like intimacy and and just actually sharing space with a, in a, holding eye contact, say, or, or in the case of Adrienne Howells's work, held is is the one she references of just, you know, actually sharing space and being held by another person. That that's what's difficult for her, and 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 that's when when affect comes back into the the questions around this,
2: uh, yeah, um,
1: idea of difficulty.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's really interesting, isn't it? And that's, I think, a very contemporary line to explore as as well. Yeah, the the kinds of intimacy that are hardest and not the ones most written about in the past, necessarily, or not even the obvious ones. Yeah, yeah.
1: And the risks of of disclosing different different parts of oneself or, mm-hmm. or one's life are certainly contextual too. Eh?
2: Yeah, yeah. And, you know, just the way things like um, you know dating at app culture, you know, sort of forecloses certain possibilities of intimacy and privileges other ones and avoids some altogether kind of thing. How how that sort of entered into the it's a sort of semi-public universe that entered into a private one and made it something else. Love to see somebody write about that someday. And it's like just the weird, like people have such super interesting relations of publicness and privateness, yeah. You know, like there's there's trans girls I know where if I wanted I could follow their OnlyFans and they'd be only too happy if I did, but I will n- never know their real names. <laughs> you know, so it's like yeah, flesh is just nothing that can be public, but no, you're not even gonna know my name.
1: <laughs> yeah, I've actually been thinking in in the, this one. Book I'm, I'm writing on based on my time in, living in Vancouver. I've been thinking about a quite queer relationship I had, but I'm like, actually, you know, for as close as we were, I never knew this person's age. And that was something that would never be disclosed. <laughs> it's kind of like, but it's sort of like, yeah, you think about these things that we get what is shared and what's, what do you accept, you know, as a person in a, a relation or community or, or as a reader, you know, what do you, what are you okay with knowing and not knowing?
2: Yep. Yeah, yeah. So it's, I, yeah, I think that, that scrambling of public and private or the sort of reorganizing of its parameters is maybe one of the reasons these writing practices are existing. And they're often sort of judged in terms of the old criteria of what's public and private and what the generic conventions of handling that are.
1: That idea that some, some have said that auto theory and auto fiction are over. I mean, yeah, I've been very skeptical of that very treadmill late capitalist way of thinking about about movements as if they just have like like a flash in the pan kind of moment. But yes, I rather than having time to kind of be developed and, and responded to. But I think one of the there's a lot of internet kind of op-ed pieces being written around this, this idea of us living this post-confessional age of hyper-disclosure and hyper-exposure on the internet and social media. And, you know, on the one hand, I take that point, but it, it's like, yeah, this idea that, okay, well, everything can be exposed and disclosed now. So what is interesting about writers writing an essay about their lives in which they're disclosing truths? But I, I don't really think it's that simple, but but I agree that, yes, we are living in this context where public and private, the, the boundaries have have shifted and there are certain things that we are just quite yeah, as society just quite comfortable with being exposed and out there that that weren't the same like 10 years ago.
2: Yeah. I mean the interesting thing about a confession is that it's confessed. Like the yeah. actual content of it's less interesting. And it's like, oh, yeah, we get it, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, you really were a crazy motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs> and you confess that, but that's it. It's mm-hmm. it's there block there, it's there on the page. But if there's no yeah, if it's not a confession, then you actually have to attend to it in, in kind of quite different ways. So, yeah, I think that's when it just begins to get interesting. Of like, oh, what if we had all of this stuff as raw material and also was now shared experience uh, so then we can work on it together? So it's then not your secret being confessed. It's like, no, this is like the shared stuff we feel like we can now talk about. And it's still also got some boundaries. Like we've talked about these things, but we're actually now not talking about these other things. So attend to that a little bit. I'm, I was just fantasizing writing a book about, you know, someone should write a book that, you know, my confessions, but it's just all like, you know, bank statements. <laughs> Chris Klaus has a whole chapter on, on Kathy Acker that's just based on bank statements that she found. I'm like, yeah, let's, let's look at the daily receipts of being a writer, you yeah.
1: know? Yeah, or, you know, people's. I guess rent checks or housing, how much money they receive from their parents or not, maybe or something. It's like all these things we don't yeah. talk about
2: yeah. <laughs> around privilege. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. As a petite bourgeois, you know, writer. Sorry, I'll cop to that, you know. <laughs> but that does feel like a confession in this world. It's not a thing anybody yeah.
1: It's true, it's funny. In the book I talk about is like post-confessional, because you have the the capital C confessional poets like Sylvia Plath and Sexton, Robert Lowell, and where it was confessional because they tended to be, yeah, to speak about things that were taboo at the time, which then was, you know, anything in the domestic sphere of the home, your feelings of shame and... There was the assumption that there was shame because these were taboo and and alternative sexualities and mental health. I feel like those tended to be the like the trio of of the taboos. And but then yeah, now I, I love how you put it, Mackenzie. Like if if this is no longer taboo and, and there isn't the same kind of shame or the same kind of affective charge tied to these these disclosures, it's yeah maybe less of a confession and more of a just kind of matter of fact disclosure that this then becomes material that that we as writers in community. Can be like fleshing out together and working through, which I certainly feel ties to that, that auto theoretical impulse.
2: Yeah, you mentioned like mental health is maybe really the key one, like to, to have conversations around that, that are sort of where it's not to do, but also not exclusively mediated by a sort of psychiatric apparatus is, I think, real progress and not dissimilar to what happened in trans community it's like to be able to talk about it in a way that where the medical model is is a thing that you would want to have access to but you don't take it to be the dominant controlling discourse anymore like i see those things as pretty analogous and related yeah so i think that's kind of important that that we're sort of starting to get that so yeah somebody like plath would not seem like a kind of outlier who broke the rules and and stopped keeping up appearances or whatever Although I'd, I'd, I'd like a few more books by people who have tendencies to mania because that's that's my edge, you know. <laughs> wow, like why, why why is the depressive spectrum more able to get it on the page, uh, I'm, which I'm kind of curious about.
1: <laughs> yeah, maybe it's like we need to – I don't know if you ever do this, but like – Transcribing your words instead of writing, or like I feel like, are there other ways of just getting, <laughs> getting the words out and recorded, as a fellow uh, manically inclined yeah, person? Yeah,
2: like the, the, mm-hmm. there are books you can tell have a manic energy or edge, but as a sort of self-conscious sort of conversation, there's like a lot less of that somehow, and particularly for people who've managed to make it functional, yeah. It's, it's, if, if it functions for you know capitalist accumulation, then it's not even really a problem as far as it's concerned.
1: Well, and in your book and, and in and in Test Testo Junkie, there's that writing through altered states and and the role of drugs and in the writer's you know headspace and capacities of, for articulating that. There's a point in the book I I don't want to misquote you, but where you do say being in that that drug fueled state allows a certain form of clarity that isn't there. Oh yeah, um, I got
2: all my best and worst ideas when I was high. And it's, it's part of the practice, but it's not the key part of the practice. So I don't want to give anybody that impression. But, yeah, it's not for everybody. But, yeah.
1: Well, I think you, yeah, you do a really nice job of like showing that ambivalence, I think, you know, like that there's maybe some kinds of insight and clarity and yet also a kind of limitation around um, being able to grasp that or articulate yeah. that maybe. I, I don't want to misquote yeah. you, but.
0: Yeah,
2: and, and I lost people from communities, so I'm definitely not advocating this at all, but it is a thing that people do. So it's, again, it's the thing to have a conversation around that. Yeah, I particularly for writers and artists, yeah, like that's changing your perception of body and world is sort of your job. And yeah, there's there's sort of practices that one can engage that they kind of do that.
1: Yeah, I think to write, uh, you know, a book, it's you you're having to channel some kind of altered state even if you're, you know, 100% sober and yeah. So so I think that that's that's what brought that to mind for me and then that idea of writing through a manic state is really interesting. Yeah, I feel like there's a lot of great work being done around like auto-theoretical writings at the very least autobiographical with a critical tenancy writings coming out of like critical disability studies, mad identified folks, um, a lot of of really interesting work that takes up the politics of health and care from, as you've said, you know, not necessarily looking primarily from say a psychiatric institution standpoint, but being able to look, access a, a bunch of different points of entry. Maybe that's tied to that idea of shuttling between registers that we see in a lot of these works too, but being able to look to different points of, of reference for, for insight and knowledge that there isn't just that single kind of way of talking about mental health or mental illness, for example.
2: Yeah. Or physical illness. I'm, I'm thinking, yeah. Bob Flanagan's pain diaries. So you mentioned Ann Boyer, like one, one, one of the big prizes for a, for a cancer book. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. I've mm-hmm. read, I've not yet read but Oh yeah.
1: Yeah. I just published a review of that actually the, the undying. Yeah. No, it's a, it's a fantastic book. On breast cancer, or Esme wei Wang's *The Collected Schizophrenias*. Have you read that one? It's really great. I, I feel like it would fit the it would fit the bill of auto theory. Yeah, they write through their experience of schizophrenia and, and theorize the state and very definition of schizophrenia and in, in some some really exciting and and I think like completely new ways, at least completely new to me and what I had read before.
2: Oh, it's super interesting. And I'm just thinking, you know, like the the Surrealists did an exercise where they wrote as if they had certain medically diagnosable conditions, you know, but like, fuck those guys. (laughs) People are writing, but how is that a thing that can be something other than documentary? Like how can we treat that as art when it is? And how do we recognize it? Yeah, I think that's part of the... I mean, that's something I want to say about your book is, is is how you rethink what the critical enterprise is when you're talking about a different writing practice. So maybe sort of bringing some of the... Because there is like such a tool, literary critical toolkit, but it sort of presupposes the same objects a little bit. And there's something kind of fresh about, oh, well, wait a minute, these are different kinds of writing practices. Maybe we sort of like just rebuild the kit selectively as to how, you know, and what's interesting and useful as, as you know... As Foucault would say, like, yeah, what's the what's the theory toolbox specific for this? Rather than thinking we have to like slam a huge slab of psychoanalytic literary theory on.
1: Well, I feel like just from the early days of this research, I was realizing, okay, a lot of the writers I like are coming from the art world sort of and and Acker being you know one of these figures that don't really fit in with the literary world of their time per se and nor the art world but they're that liminal place between and and I was I felt like a lot of the writers that I was gravitating toward had came to writing from a performance art practice or a filmmaking practice or performance and sex work or video art like there's all these different ways of working that the writing then came after or was was part of that and and similar to I think a lot of writers to gravitate toward writing about art and and engaging with, with visual objects and durational objects that there was, yeah, that that liminality between art and writing that I was starting to get curious about. And and it seemed like auto theory as a form of critical creative practice was one of the shapes, I guess, that um, those practices took.
2: Yeah, well, it it turned out it was kind of useful because the role of the writer in the art world is mostly decorative, you know, like you're not central to it at all. And what's really great about that is that I kind of don't care what you do. You know, like if if like artists and, and you know audiences like think it's interesting, then that's that's the only test kind of thing. So it's sort of like having this weird minor position in a major culture industry is actually really helpful. Whereas obviously the the literary industry is about certain kinds of writing. So you kind of have to write it in the available genres to sort of be a player in it yeah we're just like there's so much space and like sometimes even more money you know to be found in the art world where it's just like yeah just 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 it's three thousand dollars and it's four thousand words like just go do it whatever you know it's kind of like those commissions are kind of like gold yeah and then yeah it's all it's all and, and you've given some objects to think and feel through and Art to be adjacent to.
1: Yeah, no, your point about art writing is spot on. (laughs) It's like, you know, art writing as its own form of creative practice, that it's not just about what you're writing about the art object, but also a work of art in and of itself. I feel like that's been the at least in theory what a lot of art writers are, are are wanting their their work to be seen as and I say this as someone who's who's done quite a bit of art writing but I I agree that yes it tends to be where you actually get paid <laughs> some nice little honor area and yeah there's a lot of formal freedom and and some of the the most interesting stuff I've gotten to write and and well, I actually was some of the most interesting stuff I've gotten to publish is through art writing. And it's kind of like, yeah, in contrast to, you know, a scholarly journal or even creative writing publications, I feel like I, as a kind of, young writer was having my own struggles around fitting in and my own you know traumas and creative writing context of being told you know you have no sense of genre convention or, or whatever but then all of a sudden that doesn't matter when you're able to kind of freely experiment with form and I feel like art writing a lot of art writers are doing interesting work that's starting from a kind of autobiographical place or you know what is my relation to this what is my um, experience of this art object so yeah I, I feel like art writing and criticism certainly plays a kind of key role in the development of this auto theoretical impulse in contemporary cultural production today
2: yeah i mean it can also be really bad you know like there's there's so much bad stuff but that's kind of great you know like the the rummage sale where you just like find these gems you know because they weren't those sort of constraints and uh, there's now this obsessive training in certain kinds of definitions of craft if you want to be a fiction writer or an essay writer or whatever in sort of the, the writing culture industry, but yeah, in the art industry, it's like no, it's like you just seem to be able to put some sentences together and you're interesting. So <laughs> here's a commission. You know? So yeah, it's proven, and and yeah, I think Ben Tillman figured that out. Uh, Kathy Acker dabbled with that in the 80s. In fact, the whole anthology is of art adjacent writing from the 80s, because it's like literary world was just so boring. You know, it was just this other space. You could go hang out in, and artists are interesting right you get to hang out with people and not be jealous of them too that's the other great thing about like you're doing a different thing <laughs> it's kind of great that's such a good
1: point <laughs> it's like yeah the stakes feel different so it's like okay we're yeah we're, we're each in our own lane uh to some extent
2: mm-hmm. exactly yeah with other writers you know there's always that you know like two cats in the room kind of thing you know Maybe it's just my bad personality. But I think that's pretty common.
1: <laughs> no, I no, I think you're right for sure. It's maybe it comes back to the idea of just being in the same scene with the same points of reference, same ways of working. That there's there's maybe something fresh and and freeing about having two different practices come together and le- less friction, maybe or less yeah competition
2: and better parties. <laughs> <That's> true. <laughs> uh, it's been fun, yeah. but uh, I think my, my brain is kind of. A- me too yeah thank you so much like best of luck with the book and i'm I'm really glad to hear you're actually doing your own that sounds super interesting thank you
1: yeah no i feel like i
2: i subscribe to asap because i'm a member so i'm super oh nice great you have planned for that
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm yeah it'll be coming out in may so i'll keep
2: you posted
1: yeah please keep me posted on your projects too like I'm, I'm super excited to read philosophy for spiders that's a beautiful title by the way and yeah love and money sex and death yeah no i really appreciate by this sure. conversation so thanks again
2: bye
0: lauren
1: bye bye mckenzie
0: i'd just like to say thank you again to Mackenzie and lauren As well as thanking Samantha Doyle who mixes the podcast and Kristen Galineau who provided the soundtrack.